0: Hello there, and welcome to Unleash Love. My name is Clem Young, and I'm your host. And today, I have an amazing guest. I highly respect this guest. Not that I don't respect my other guests, but I've been following this person for some time now, and I love the content that he puts out there. More importantly, I read his book, absolutely loved it, highly recommend it. It's called One More Light. This man's name is James Gearing. James Gearing is a firefighter, and a stuntman from, I don't even know if stuntman's a right name for it these days, stuntman from California, living there with his family, originally from the United Kingdom. And so we talk about his book, which is really kind of a love letter to first responders everywhere, because, you know, it takes a special kind of person to do that kind of job. Um, And it's a book about being human. It's a book about being part of a community, about compassion, love, It's about trauma. It's about sacrifice. And that's what this conversation is about too. And we touch on a number of other subjects as well. So I hope you enjoy it. If you did like it, please leave a rating and a review in the Apple podcast platform because every single one we get helps us reach a bigger audience. And without further ado, let's jump right into it. I bring you James Gearing. I think the first question really that I wanted to ask you is why
1: did you write this book? so when i when I started the podcast, and you know we can go into the reason behind that in a little bit, but, um, you know, it was to provide free information like i I knew that the right information wasn't being given to. Yeah, the responders and um, you know, just everyone in general, to be honest. And the people were out there, but that's not what you were seeing on the little, you know, health feature of your, you know, TV show or you know your favorite Instagram bodybuilder. I mean, it just wasn't wasn't you know wellness stuff, whether it was mental health or physical health. Um, and so when it came to when I decided to write the book. I had just learned so much. Like I'm not an expert in any way, shape or form, which is I think why it works because I'm a student, you know, I'm not masquerading to have some, you know, all the answers. I just try and find the people that do. But after, at that point, probably about three years, like I had learned so much from these people. So, and, you know, I, I don't have the story as in I wasn't um, at 9-11. I wasn't at the Vegas shooting. I wasn't, you know, the, the, the London bombings or any of these acute events that, in themselves you know you could write an entire book about um so i'm like but that's a good thing because that gives me a lens of the other 99 percent of people out there who still do and see incredible things but it's not like you know the the big newsworthy events um and it's it was a double-edged sword because firstly as responders what we see most people in the world don't see what we see and do. Um, and I don't mean that in a kind of, you know, pedestal type way, but we get to peer behind the curtain. We get to see, you know, the the true cost of the obesity epidemic, of the, you know, the addiction epidemic, of the the gang violence, you know, I mean all these things. And, and they can be dressed up for the news, but they're, you know, little shiny objects and then they're off to the next conversation. So I wanted to give people that perspective. Look at look at the world through our eyes. But then conversely I also wanted to write a book. That took all that wellness information and gave it to the civilians, but also gave it to the first responders, because there is this kind of almost god complex or hero complex, and it's not you know something people put upon themselves, but we're expected to be superheroes. You know, there's a facade of that. It's it's complete fiction. Um, so there isn't that self care, you know, and there isn't that understanding that we're slowly being broken down, that we're slowly going from what I would argue was some of the fittest and most resilient members of the community to some of the least at the end of our career or mid-career. So, so that was it really, it was, it was telling stories through, you know, through my career, but always having a, a lesson learned. And obviously again, not, not, I have the answers, but trying to point to other areas and other people that are doing it right already. And then it's just trying to connect, it's, it's being a conduit. So So that was the reason for the book. Obviously, the the podcast has all the answers, in my opinion, and I'm still, you know, obviously collecting them. But the book was a way of sowing seeds and getting people to really question what they've been taught.
0: Mm, Yeah. Did did it end up the way you wanted it to? Or was it like an evolution? When you started, did it go in a totally different direction?
1: Yeah, it's... I remember Tim Ferriss had a guest, um, and uh, he quotes him and he said, you know, if you want to start writing, just sit down and write. I think it was like, two shitty pages every day and his point was you just write you just get into the habit of writing and that's what i did and the first time around they ended up just being shitty pages (laughs) they never progressed into anything but it just kind of sat in the back of my mind for a while and then it was ironically right before the whole covid thing hit um i decided to pick it up and then yeah i mean they they really just flowed i think if you let something ruminate enough um, and without forcing it, it does come out. And obviously, you know, I, I sent it to Sebastian Junger and, um, Jason Casper and, and Josh Brolin and some of these, you know, mentors that I've been so lucky to, uh, to come across through the podcast who I admire for their, their writing as well. Um, and got feedback and listened to them and, you know, change it and had this amazing editor in, in Scotland, um, who, cause I wanted to make, keep it British. So I didn't want it to be edited in an American voice, um, and uh, again, you know, her feedback was incredible. But yeah, so it, so it when I actually sat down and r- write it the second time, you know, even though it was molded a lot, the clay was molded, um, I couldn't be happier with the result, you know, because I think that's it. You know, no one can dictate the success of something like that. But if you are happy that the message that you wanted to get across is coming across in that book, to me, you know, that's, that's beautiful. I wouldn't change a thing.
0: Mm, yeah, I could, uh, James, can I get you to drag your camera a little bit to the right, just so yes. that I can put you more center? Because yeah,
1: I'm, I'm leaning towards my microphone. It's all right. Uh, Is that better? I just
0: needed it. Yeah, no, it's totally good. Um, yeah, Josh Brolin read the forward, right? So I was surprised when I heard his voice, and I, I didn't know that you guys were friends. How did that come about?
1: Yeah, so he, he wrote the forward, which, again, I mean, you talk about an, an honor, you know, as busy as he is and as, as you know, well-known as about he is. not someone who's trying
0: to change the universe here.
1: Yes. <laughs> and, well, here's the irony as well. When, so he came on the podcast, and I'll give you the backstory. But when he came on, it was what was known jokingly as The Summer of Brolin because he had um, the Deadpool 2 film, the Avengers film, the um, Sicario film, and then um, the – I think it was The Legend of the White white-tailed Deer. I think I've got that right. Anyway, four films all going out and, and he still took the time to come on the podcast. So he himself is a, was a wildland firefighter volunteered for a few seasons. But, but you talked about Only the Brave. The way this all started, um, unbeknownst to me, Only the Brave was about to come out. And I, for some reason, you know, my finger wasn't on the pulse with that particular film. But I just wanted to reach out to Brendan McDonough, who's the the sole survivor of that that incident from that crew, um, and the reason he survived, he was sent to a different ridgeline to act as a lookout, um, so he was you know geographically separated. Um, so anyway when I reached out, I had to go through the press junket, which is really weird for a firefighter doing a podcast through a laptop that I had to join, you know, all the big, big TV shows and, uh, go through that. So anyway, um, I interviewed Brandon and then, um, I also interviewed Amanda Marsh. So, um, Josh plays Eric Marsh, who was the superintendent of that hotshot crew. And Amanda was, you know, his real, real life, um, widow, so we did a great conversation as well and and her and Joshua friends because because of the film he spent a lot of time with her learning about Eric so ultimately through you know, through osmosis and hopefully him you know realizing this was coming from a good place he ended up coming on the show um and just as you know some people it's just an interview and some people it becomes you know a friendship and that's what happened there so yeah he's been incredible he's he just adores the fire service and that's who I wanted to yeah, you know, to, to have right the forward as someone that people respect, but also, you know, understands what we do.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of substance behind that guy. I mean, I, I knew him of him for a long time, uh, like you do with many actors and actresses and things. But when I, some, for some reason started following him on Instagram, he's a very poetic person and a very deep person. And that strikes you immediately when you see someone who takes the time to actually think, Deeply about things and then articulate that for other people. It's not necessarily only for other people. I think there's some ca- something cathartic about that. But um, yeah, it, w- it was a great forward. It was a really great forward. You know, some forwards are just like, um, I've known James for a while and he's a great person and, you know, all of that stuff, right? Which is nice. But to have someone articulate something really in a deep, profound way, I, it was it was fantastic. So so great job with that, and it, I'm sure it only helped to further get the message out. Um, but speaking of the, only the brave, I watched it last night. Um, I watched it because I knew of it from you. I, I in the book, you know, it's I think you referenced it in the book, um, and I wanted to know a little bit more about what it's like to be a firefighter in the United States. And it's a fucking terrifying job, I'll be honest with you. And that's probably just even the tip of the iceberg because I have no idea what it's like on your side. There's two, like we said earlier, there's two different distinct types of firefighters that we were talking about here. The urban firefighting and the the uh, the wild the wildfire firefighters. But um, I watched the movie. It, it was an amazing film. Spoiler alert, I suppose. Um, excellent cast. Joseph Kaczynski, he directed it he did he did Tron and a number of other movies he's doing Top Gun 2 I think as well so that was it was it was a really well done film and it was something that I like it when there's a lot of thought and talent that goes into um, communicating really hard-hitting social um, you know topics so, you know such as what what does it mean to protect your community and uh and 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 what are these people sacrificing for us and that's essentially what your podcast is about that 's essentially what your book is about is part, part of it is trying to bring to the spotlight what people um don't see about all of the uh of the you know the the passion and the energy and the and the and the emotion and the and just the tragedy that goes into this line of work it's it's crazy i'm sure that actually because of that movie and the book i'm sure there've been an uptick in applications for the fire uh, department what do you think
1: well, here's the problem um, from what I understand again. Uh, so my, one of my departments in California, well, I mean, we've always, I've always done wildland firefighting as one of the tools, but it's not the the main thing. It's once in a blue moon, but um, especially out in California, we did train a lot more when I was out there, but I've had some guests on here who are, you know, that's their entire career there. They are wildland firefighters. And apparently at the moment it's the opposite. They're, they're woefully understaffed. Um, so, you know, what happens? The fire still has to be fought, so these men and women are lent on to work more and more and more. So they're seeing a lot of a lot of issues in in wildland fire, a lot of mental health struggles, addiction, all kinds of things, um, and that's what worries me. You know, these fires are getting bigger and bigger. You know, whether people believe of climate change or just you know. Annual seasonal changes, whatever the reason, the 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 fuel is getting larger, the fires are getting bigger and more dangerous, and we're doing it with less people. So I wish there was an uptick. I really do. But from what I'm hearing from that community, it's quite the opposite. Holy crap! I mean, just because it's such a uh,
0: it's such an inspiring film, and it's and your book is incredibly inspiring too. And I, and I just maybe I'm the kind of person who reads something like that. And thinks that's something I would want to do, you know, because it's so much more valuable to me to do something that makes a difference than to just get a paycheck, you know. Um, And look, some of the some of the most uh, the strongest points that are being made uh, with your book are that community and you know that kind of tribal lifestyle of just being part of a group of humans that take care of one another is something we are forgetting and it's impacting our quality of life and our ability to um you know like mobilize and and be self-sufficient and be happy and fulfilled and so it's it's got this kind of pull to it the, the whole idea of the, the military of the police of the any kind of first responder or social service it, it has a kind of, that kind of a pull and especially when it's put into a format like that you know it, it can so it's it's sad to it's sad to know that there's and even now today like I feel like we should we should be having more you know because of the the challenges I don't know what your b- beliefs are around climate change but like you know to me it's undeniable and I, I mean is it you know, what do you think, how do you think uh, this, this challenge is going to be solved?
1: Um. So, I mean, there's, again, from the people that I hear, I mean, one of the things that we can definitely do is stop, you know, not letting is the wrong word, but stop creating opportunities to build in areas that are surrounded by high fire load, mother nature has these fires. It's a normal thing, you know, and and, and there's that regeneration, which is beautiful. Um, and with the, the climate change, it's funny because I talk about this every so often. I lived in California for one, LA and, you know, people would argue back and forth with that and my, and the same with London. And it's like, well, put it this way. You can't even see, you know, 200 feet down the road when the smog is so bad. So why don't we just, f- not even talk about climate change. Just talk about just pollution in general. If we have that conversation, if climate change is a thing, it's going to improve. If not, if it's not a thing, it's still going to improve. You know. But we can see the trash in our oceans. We can see the pollution in our cities. You know. You blow your nose in London; it's black. So you know that's what's crazy about that conversation is yes, we need to do better environmentally. But I think with the wildland side is you know definitely um, stopping. You know, people being out in the, in the middle of nowhere, if, if there's a high fire load, you know, or building, which someone had a great idea, building shelter in place stations. So if there's a hurricane here in Florida, you know, we'll, we'll all go to the local school if it's a really, really bad one and that you hunker down there. Well, in the wildland area, you know, th- that would be an opportunity for a, a town to have the same thing in a fire and you build something that's fire resistant. Um, another one is obviously staffing the fire service properly you know and giving these men and women the rest and recovery that they need and then backburning there's a lot of opposition to starting deliberate fires to to you know remove that fuel under control conditions when there aren't you know bad wind conditions and things but you get a lot of opposition from the communities oh i don't want smoke in my town well you know what do you want smoke in your town or no town you know so um yeah there's all these things i think that can be improved and again i'm i'm talking from from a stance of what I'm learning from that community. I'm not an expert myself, but they all seem to make perfect sense to me with a lot of the fires and um, Paradise is a perfect example in California that was a horrendous fire and a lot of lives lost and you know I wonder if you know some of these um, preventative proactive solutions have been put in place, maybe that town would have been saved. so but again, you know that, that's some, that's really a question for, for an expert, but that's definitely what I've gleaned from the conversations
0: yeah i mean even you just talking about that makes me wonder you know what if it was part of the policy that if you're gonna build in that area you ensure that and i don't know how the the physics of this are but you ensure that there's a certain perimeter that is made fireproof so that the fires can't actually reach that area i don't know i mean i'm I'm just already thinking like how can you engineer the shit out of this um but i I guess maybe that's not in the budget
1: (laughs) yeah well i mean that's a it's a good um that's what needs to happen but then you get the pushback well people want trees and all that stuff right by the house you know so so yeah i agree i mean if you if you create what we call a fire break you know then then in theory you know unless it's a raging fire and embers are in the sky which is another problem that happens but yeah i mean there are if you want to live in that kind of area there are definitely things you can do to make it a lot safer but you know they cost money and so it's you know it always boils down to money you know versus human lives and after the fact people are all full of remorse and you know demanding answers when people were trying to give them answers before the tragedy even happened but they didn't want to listen then so yeah it, it is a you know i think i think that i mean ultimately the whole podcast one of the themes is if we stop focusing on on wealth and start focusing on health we would change the world, but sadly, you know, money drives everything. I mean, you hear that even with, and again, this is secondhand information. I haven't researched this, but supposedly with, you know, some of the innovations in in the, the auto industry, um, or let's take the drug companies, you know, some of these lawsuits, they just absorb. Yeah, we know, we know people are dying, but we can afford to, to pay the lawsuit. So we'll just keep making it. You know, that's horrendous, because that discounts human life completely. So yeah, I think we need a big shift away from this, you know, this super capitalistic mentality back to, you know, compassion and kindness.
0: That's one of the uh, the, the the themes that I noticed a lot in your writing is that you talk about the socioeconomic political impact that decisions and uh, markets and just the the way that things work today have the impact they have on decisions that are made at the grassroots level at the at the government level at at various levels and you know i just quoted something earlier that i think you saw that you you liked it was uh, something you mentioned is that You know, we can change the world if we want. We just have to have uh, compassion and kindness at every rung of the ladder, something like that. Um, How much have you struggled with doing your job as a result of bureaucratic uh, negligence or, you know?
1: So as a a firefighter, I've been very, very lucky because in my opinion, I've seen the two extremes of the scale. So, um, the the first department I worked for, when it came to hiring and the um, you know, the orientation and training, was phenomenal. The second department I worked for, overall as an organisation, the leadership, the 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 hiring standards, the bar they set so high, phenomenal. The last place that I worked at was the polar opposite. So I really got to see you know, the best and the worst. Um, and the worst, as you can imagine, the bureaucracy was horrendous. And what I think a lot of people don't realize this is right in, um, or rife, right, excuse me, in you know, the definitely in fire and police and EMS. Um, I'm sure it is in corrections and then, you know, expand out to, to many businesses, but organizational stress. When you have, you know, a leadership void, well, look at, look at this last year. You know, some some of the countries that I think had people that overall the nation respected in leadership positions, they seem to have done pretty well. Then you have the US and the UK (laughs) where, you know, I'm still like just so angry and so exasperated over the lack of leadership this last year, year and a half. Um, And when I say leadership, I mean like just... You know, not playing into the fear mongering, but taking facts and taking figures and saying, oh, this is actually optimistic. It's not as bad as we thought, da da da, de escalating. And we, did, we saw the opposite. We saw it being used as a political pro, uh, crowbar for all those people, you know. But then you look at New Zealand and some of these other places, they seem to have been led very well. But anyway, um, so that has a, a horrendous domino effect. So, yeah, you have a lot of really amazing men and women in these professions who are chomping at the bit to to make their department great, to be the best version that they can be. And they just hit a brick wall. And it's a lot to do with egos, a lot to do with people being in positions they have just completely aren't even qualified to be in. And that creates so much stress in that organization. And that's I think one of the elephants in the room when it comes to anxiety, depression, and even suicide is that organizational stress. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's huge and, and, you know, we're very siloed here in the U S when it comes to the fire service. So you have two departments side by side and they're basically reinventing the wheel themselves. So some find themselves doing quite well, absolutely. But there's many that, that just aren't. And even our work week, which I wrote about in the book, you know the firefighter work week here is is horrendous and it's killing our men and women. Um, so we have what I would consider the right work week, which is forty two hours a week, twenty four hours straight on shift, and then uh, seventy two hours to to reset and catch up on sleep and try and recover. All the way through to the federal firefighters that work twenty four hours on and then twenty four hours off. So. Basically, they go home, get their stuff ready, and then go back to work continuously. So that's 72-hour work week minimum before you're told you can't go home, which is what's called a mandatory where you could literally, you know, seven o'clock the next morning after not sleeping for 24 hours, be told, oh, you can't go home. You got to stay for another 24. We haven't got enough people. And usually that's not an acute event like a hurricane or an earthquake. It's a chronic event because they haven't staffed properly you know so and who who does it land squarely on the men and women that are out there same with the COVID crisis in the uk i think the nhs is the most amazing you know altruistic um you know philosophy i love it but what they've done to the nhs is they've shaved it down to bare bones and then COVID happens and what do they do for those those doctors and nurses and everyone else that works in healthcare they just get outside and clap So does that take any of the pressure off them? No, it just leaves them with the burden and we call them heroes too. That'll do it. You know? So it was
0: such a surreal experience because I was in the UK for the duration of the pandemic until recently I'm in Spain right now. And, um, I mean, it was such a really batshit crazy experience. I've, I feel like it's that once in a lifetime event, hopefully that, uh, just doesn't make any sense, and and is very traumatic and and difficult to get through. And you know, you might argue, okay, at least bombs weren't going off, you know, and houses weren't exploding next door. And I I kind of agree with that. I think that that's that's a, a good way to put it into perspective. We're quite lucky that way. But at the same time, and you talk about this too in your book, is the repercussions of what the lockdown actually meant meant for people. Um, but in re- relation to what you just said. The NHS is an amazing service, and the message that it sends is very important. But getting out in the street and clapping is such a weird, weird, fab, uh, uh, how would you say this? It's a fabricated, yeah, it's a politicized, fabricated um, tool to get people to um, just go along with the program. <laughs> and 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 it's like the yeah you can record it and put it on the TV and the news and you can you can televise some of it but that's not going to change much i mean you know i think i think i i think there's a lot of that that's been going on i'm not sure what the 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 term to describe that kind of behavior is that kind of mass manipulation of people but it's kind of like um it's just setting a narrative isn't it it's just kind of like saying hey everybody this is what we're going to be doing today Get along with the program and uh and if you don't well then you're just a bad person because you don't support your uh, first responders and your uh, NHs service and your so I think we were all drawn and pulled down that that um, that sewage hole with the the political things that were going on and you know whatever you believe happened over the last couple of years because there's a lot of there is a lot of theories as to why these things happened and some of them are more accepted than others and i think you're um i think it's uh within your right to have any kind of view um i think the discussion actually needs to be hap- had and that's one of the problems that i've had is that we haven't been able to talk about this ironically it's how i found you i think the first thing that i saw from you was one of the messages that you left of you talking about what was going on, and, and it kind of resonated with me because I I had the same thoughts or similar thoughts. I didn't agree with things, and I still don't agree with things. In the book, you talk about how there's a a, a, a lot of contradictory evidence that suggests you know policies that were made and heavily rooted for around the world, like locking down and keeping people in their homes actually didn't really have the effect that they were supposed to. um, Because when you look at nations like Sweden, uh, they didn't really do a lot of what, you know, was being pushed around the world. And they were really, they had the shit kicked out of them in terms of the, uh, the press really laid into them like crazy. Uh, But they had a a lot less uh, overall deaths and infections, you know, uh, relatively. So not much made sense and, but you have to think, you have to have a critical, you have to have an ability to think critically, and we're losing that. And, and you know, I didn't plan on getting to this point so quickly with you, but it's, uh, it's one of those things right now that I think if we don't leave videos like the, the type that you are leaving, like the type that I'm leaving, that stir up the conversation around these very, very, very important subjects, the future of perhaps our entire civilization, because if you extrapolate the way that our society is going, if you look at the last 50 years and then you kind of like quantify that into the future, where are we going to end up, you know, with one corporation that rules all and absolutely no freedom and rights? I mean, that's where we're heading, right? So I think these are the kinds of conversations and I'm glad that you you dive into them. Um, I think these are the kind of conversations that we really need to have.
1: Yeah. Well, just to, I want to kind of clarify as well. And obviously I write about this in the book. Like I, I was a hundred percent, you know, aware that COVID was real. You know, again, when when COVID started is when I added an extra podcast a week to put out real world boots on the ground, you know, um, perspectives on what we were seeing what we were going through um it was absolutely real there were some pockets that definitely overwhelmed very local areas usually in areas whose hospitals are already overwhelmed you know whether it's the you know, new york city or you know the heart of london and i again as a firefighter paramedic i've held the wall all those horrific scenes that we saw oh there's patients in the hallway there are patients in the hallway of hospitals all over the world every single day so newsflash for you but um but it's absolutely real on some of those poor men and women that ended up in ICU, you know, that some of those, uh, doctors and nurses were saying it was, it was awful. There was a horrible, horrible death. And especially early on when they were intubating now they've obviously made huge advances in, in treating, you know, the, the COVID victims. Um, I, I locked down when we locked down here, I wore a mask, even in the stunt show, we have to wear, we still have to wear a mask, even though the audience doesn't, which is crazy. But, um, you know, I did everything they did. My son and I have been vaccinated, because I want to make sure that nothing stops me traveling. I haven't seen my family in two years in the UK. So I'm standing in the middle, I did everything everyone asked. But what my whole thing is, okay, so you're telling us that health matters, lives matter. Where is the conversation on removing pesticides and chemicals from our food stopping you know industrial farming where is the you know the boosting the pe in schools no more fast food or or anything being served but we actually serve clean meals to our children in schools where are all these because you're telling me that that lives matter yeah we lose you know multiple times what you're telling us covid is killing through obesity through strokes through you know the the addiction epidemic where's the discussion on on the ridiculous prohibition of of addiction you know the 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 drug issue why are we not treating addicts like uh, medical patients that like they do in portugal so that's the problem i've had with this it's been all pomp and circumstance and and completely shallow rhetoric if you truly care about lives then this whole year and a half you would have been changing you would have thrown all kinds of money into the nhs to support those men and women in the meantime you would have really kicked off some some proactive preventative measures to increase the entire health of the nation but what happened the fast food places stayed open i certainly did in america only all the drive-throughs and all the gyms were closed down all the parks were wrapped in do not cross tape and everyone was told to stay inside so to me what they were saying, their message was, couldn't have been further from the truth of what you actually do to make the, the country not only healthier in general, but also more resilient to the disease. Because you want to make people more susceptible, lock them inside, don't let them have any sunlight, take away the autonomy, only keep all the shit restaurants open, and therefore you're more likely to have an acute re- uh, reaction to COVID. So I I think it was that was what I had an issue. Of course, COVID was real, but if you truly care about health, then where where was the proof that you were actually caring about health outside hand sanitizers, masks, and vaccinations?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I find it entertaining that we, we need to make people aware that we, we actually believe that the virus exists and we're not saying it doesn't because it's such a hard thing today to talk about these things without someone somewhere jumping to conclusions and, you know, calling you out and trying to cancel you for having an alternative way of thinking about something it's not like you know i i like to believe that most people most people are reasonable you know and so when they start a conversation it's not designed to um provoke or to uh, vilify it's really just kind of like hey, did you know that this is what I think's happening? And and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I like to believe that I give people the benefit of the doubt, right? That's what, that's what my prerogative is. I, I want to give people a platform. And so whenever I hear an alternative point of view, I do my best to open my mind and consider that what they're saying might be true. And I think I think I would like to think that most people do. So it's very strange today that we're in a time where you have to be super articulate and super thoughtful and sensitive and careful about the things that you say because of the fear that it's gonna be misinterpreted and uh, you know there's gonna be an, an, an outcry. And that's happened a lot in the last year or so. Um, I, this is bringing me into the whole subject of social movements, specifically within the United States. And, you know, we've got a huge one that I'm, I mean, I I guess it's still going on, which is the defund the police movement. Um, What has it been like for you to, because how long have you been living in the States for now?
1: I've been here almost 20 years. I think it's like 18 or 19, I think.
0: Okay. Right. Gotcha. And uh, it must have been absolutely crazy for you to witness this unfold how how have you what's your observations about all of this
1: so again it's about absolutes i mean when you see the the george floyd video um when brianna taylor is killed because of you know again i i don't know if so much that was a fault of the actual people making entry i think it was more of a miscommunication of which building what time that kind of thing again i'm not well versed in that but these are horrendous tragedies and mistakes that were made by whoever was behind them um, and also the organization though. And that's a problem. We can't just vilify the person, you know, it's so this, this take away from the extremes for a second and go to the more gray area, you know, ones where ultimately the police officer was justified, but you know, some people Monday morning quarterback it and go, yeah, but this could have happened. A lot of our men and women out there are, you know, woefully undertrained in a lot of these departments. The the training standards in some departments, can be very low. I tell you right now, I know this for a fact, police and fire, our fitness standards are usually dog shit. Like very, very, very few departments hold their men and women accountable to a standard annually. You know, so now... You're allowed to, um, you know, you're allowed to to slip. The best of of those, you know, officers or firefighters, or they still keep themselves in great shape. But it's despite the environment, not because of the environment. The staffing, as I said, a lot of these, you know, say law enforcement. Now, how? When was the last time that officer slept? You know, are they well staffed, or are they being forced to stay shift after shift after shift? You know, the the training. Are they going to a um, uh, you know a gun range? And just testing, you know, like six shots on a paper target, or are they actually going to a place that will put them under stress and learning how to, how to operate more from like a special forces, you know, lens to truly understand weapons training? Are they doing, you know, hands-on training? Are they doing jujitsu? So there are so many kind of strings to this bow and that's the whole entire conversation. Now, what I've just said, none of that involves taking money away from law enforcement, it's definitely putting more money into training and more money into you know gyms, and then also setting that bar high. If you don't want to be held accountable every year for your marksmanship or your your physical conditioning, then go be a plumber, knock yourself out. But you don't belong in law enforcement or fire or EMS or corrections. Um, so that's that side. But the other side of the conversation, which again I think gets zero zero time on the news, is. What are we doing that's creating such dangerous streets in the first place? If we went to Norway now, we wouldn't see ganglands. If we went to Portugal, you wouldn't see you know, drug pushers in every corner. And there's a reason for that. It's the way that they, as you said, socially have engineered the way that you know, life is in those countries. So while we have this facade they call the war on drugs here in America, we are giving all the money and power to the underworld, we are we are literally fast tracking people to become criminals and therefore you have this crime you have crime you have you know police officers murdered all the time here you know you you put young men and women in a position where they are in danger with a undertrained, underslept police officer who's nervous because he just saw that one of his officers in the neighboring town just got shot the day before you know so we have to bring that in too so to me the other side of that conversation, the proactive measure is to look at, you know, decriminalizing addiction, you know, so that you, you can't make money slinging dope anymore. The, the, the drugs go back in the hands of the medical community and you don't have fentanyl overdoses because if you're taking an opiate, you know, safe injection site well, you get given a medical pure dose. And you're being watched by a doctor or nurse, and then the the goal of that is then we filter the money away from kicking indoors, and we go to you know mental health facilities and and um, um, you know the addiction centers and all these areas to get these men and women off whatever it is that they're they're leaning on as a coping mechanism, deal with why they're leaning on it, and get them back to being you know happy members of society again. So. It's not a pipe dream because you look at Norway and Sweden and, you know, all these other places around the world that have far less crime. So that to me is the other side. It's all well and good to, you know, make a banner saying defund the police and do nothing about it yourself. To me, we create less crime. We pick the best men and women from the community to be elite performers in the law enforcement space we give them the, the, the skills not only with the weapons whether it's their firearm or or their their ability but also the skills to de-escalate we create an environment that you know I, I doubt norwegian teens are too worried about being shot being pulled over by the police you know so so that's to me it's we've got to have the entire conversation it's not complicated but it takes balls and then even the prison systems i've i've had um Uh, Tom Eberhardt is the governor of Bastoy prison outside Oslo. It looks like a a housing community. They take these men and women that have been, you know, uh, you know, sent to prison. Um, They were, you know, guilty of the charge. They lost their freedom, but they go into a housing community, live with other prisoners, they go to work, they go to school. So the point is when you get out, there's a high, high chance that you're gonna go back into society. You go into the way that we do prisons in, in the UK and in Australia and America, there's a high chance you're gonna be a worse person when you leave. You know? So these are all the discussions that gotta be had. We can't just aim at these, you know, these few incidents where absolutely the police officer was in the wrong and say, Well, that's that's it. All police officers are terrible. And if we just take their money away, then the problem will be fixed. It's absolute insanity.
0: Yeah when you said you got to have balls to have these conversations i mean i <laughs> I, I agree with that it's uh, it's not easy it's not easy to talk about subjects where you are actively trying to to bring someone to new conclusions about maybe what their reality could be you know and it's not to say that you know better than them in some cases you do because it's backed up by data um but in many cases, it's really just about helping to get a better result by re you know, uh, reintroducing new ideas and, and or ideas that have been kind of forgotten or suppressed, which is why I really love what you do, because you're all about perspectives, you're all about kind of presenting information in a very educational, logical way, but also from coming from uh, kindness and compassion so perspective, kindness, and compassion, which are lacking so much. And I think a lot of it is to do with just such the the life is such a fast paced environment now. And we are struggling to keep up with just day to day essentials, like how to, you know, we've got like multiple jobs, we've got just a lot less purchasing power perhaps in in in, in on average and, and it's just getting worse and 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 people i don't want to make it a very pessimistic uh point that i'm making it's I'm just trying to you know riff on the fact that I am also believing that we can really fix this problem if we just all come together and start to share a lot of the stuff that people are so fucking scared to talk about. Because we, you know, we're thinking it, right? It's not, it's not rocket science, right? It's not, it's not crazy to think that there's a s- stuff going on in these last couple of years that just absolutely shouldn't have happened, and is tragic, and is a tragic, um, let's say, abuse of power, perhaps, or oversight, or just neglect. These things should not have happened. The repercussions, in my opinion, of implementing such Draconian measures to protect us from a virus that uh, for all intents and purposes is similar to the con- like the flu right is uh, is just so crazy. Um, so yeah, these conversations need to be had. That's why I love your book. that's why I love your uh, your podcast and and um, on that subject of compassion, purpose, and perspective. I have realized that men specifically, but just people in general, I think we have struggled to find purpose today. There's something about that fast-paced life I told you, uh, which, which is which is somehow getting in the way of us. Thinking about well, what is it that we really want to do with our lives? What what do we want to dedicate our lives to? Because we're so caught up in like, well, I need to, you know, make the make ends meet and pay the bills. But um, how do you how do you see you know? Because you you're you obviously worked with, I would say, predominantly men, right, in the fire service.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there were a lot of women in the fire service. Yeah, I mean, the majority were male. Yeah, majority were male, and I think men,
0: you know, men. Men thrive in those environments where, you know, the job is incredibly physical. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's perhaps dangerous, right? Of course. Um, and so it's that uh, camaraderie and that community that kind of keeps them going, keeps them able to do what they're supposed to do. That's what attracts me to that kind of profession, but I don't see that same level of camaraderie and connection and brotherly love in other areas of of life for men. And I feel like I'm seeing an epidemic of men who have lost their identity and they don't know who they are anymore. And they're vilified for being male. To a a certain degree, I run a podcast and a a content platform, right? Make no mistake, the majority of my audience are female and I'm very aware of that and I love it and I I thrive off of it because I, I love helping to give women more of a platform if I can. And it seems like it's working to a certain degree, but I also see the other side of it, which is men are losing their identity. They don't know where they stand anymore. And I've also experienced a certain degree of that as well. So I just wanted to know what your thoughts are. Um, Dr. Jordan Peterson talks about it a bunch. It's like we've, we've vilified men for being men.
1: Yeah. So it's an interesting concept because i really became more of aware of it after our career. So where that's really evident in the uniform professions is when people transition out because we fit the mold, the, 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 facade of, you know, what a man is, um, when you're a firefighter, you're a police officer, you're a soldier, you know, you're a manly man, you know, you're like the, the guys in the movies and where we see a lot of issues is when people transition out, when they retire, when they get hurt, when they get fired, whatever it is, um, now they're just steve bob again but they identify as that so if they haven't got a new tribe or they haven't really understood who they were as a human being it's a very very different uh, difficult transition for them and can cause a lot of problems um what i talk about sometimes my generation i think i'm a little older than you you know we were raised on you know masculinity was John Rambo was John Wayne was all these so-called you know masculine figures Bruce Willis none of those fucking people ever served and I'm not saying anything bad about them other than they weren't you know public servants they weren't you know war heroes they were actors they were people that showed up memorized some lines and I'm in you know I'm in that industry too stunts is what you know my side gig is so again I'm just you know calling a spade a spade that isn't masculinity that is a character that is fiction um you know josh for example plays some very manly figures on screen but then as you see, loves art loves poetry you know he has this very you know the, he has the yin and the yang and i think that's the problem is i can't remember which is which is the the hard side now the yin or the yang but we rather than looking at the human being as having both which i think male and female it's the same you know um that's what's so funny about this whole gender fluidity and everything. Each to their own, but that's not a new concept. That men can be gentle and women can be tough. I hate to tell you, that's not you're not you're not you know revolutionising the world, you know, challenging your traditional genders. That's that's just common sense. But um, but uh, yeah, so but that mask of masculinity, that that facade that you're supposed to be this emotionless tough guy, is absolute bullshit. And that, I think, is where we get in trouble. A man, what drives a person to become a police officer, a firefighter, you know, a paramedic is because they care. Overall, there's, there's the anomalies, but overall, it's because we care. That's a very soft characteristic. When we're in the middle of our job, when someone's shooting at us, when we're going to a burning building, that's the hard side. You're in the flow state. That's not the time for tears and fear, you know? So, but after you, God forbid, see something horrific. You know, some people don't make it out of that fire. Now you have to remember that there's that soft side too and you have to address that within yourself. So I think that's that's the issue I see is I think people feel like they have to fit in this mold of what we're told as a man and that, that mold is absolute dog shit. I mean, it's just a fucking facade made up by people that were probably never very masculine or courageous in the first place. Um, and you see, yeah, you see this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you look at most politicians and that kind of thing, the kind of bullshit that comes out of their mouth. They, oh God, they've, yeah. they've never done a good thing in their life. It's all been self-serving. So, and again, I'm tarring everyone with the same brush. There are some amazing people in politics, but I think they're few and far between. I really do. Um, so I think just to kind of, you know, wrap that thought up, I think that's the problem is to to disassemble the concept of what a man is in the first place and just be a good human being. You know, if, if you're born a male and you're heterosexual, but you love poetry and ballet and, and flower arranging, you're still a man if you, you know, if that's what you identify. There's, there's no, you know, cookie cutter element for any of us. Each of us is this unique, beautiful tapestry of all these things that make us up. So I think that's the problem the facade of masculinity and and or femininity um, is not only, you know, very dangerous, but I think that's why there's so much confusion around this whole gender issue. You know, I mean, like the toilets, for example, just have a toilet, you know, put a toilet in a place with a door. And it doesn't matter if you're male, female, you know, from outer space, whatever. You just got your own place to pee. It's not that complicated, (laughs) you know. I would much rather not poo next to another man anyway. So I think (laughs) it's a win-win
0: yeah that's a really good point although i suppose a woman would say the same thing
1: <laughs> yeah well exactly i mean that's the thing you know so I, it's we're making issues out of non-issues you know if, if someone identifies a certain way good for you if someone sleeps with someone and it's not you know in a predatory way it's just who they love and it's mutual good for you if it's not hurt anyone else just move on but we just get stuck in these ruts and to have the entire planet talking about that when there are things that are taking lives that are far more important to discuss. That's the issue. You know, it's all those trigger clickbait mentality. And, you know, we need to just put our big boy, big girl pants on and move the hell on. Tough love. Is that something
0: that you would support, like a recurring theme in the things that we've discussed regarding your line of profession or any kind of line of profession? where, you know, a lot of dangerous things, um, a lot of dangerous work needs to happen is, uh, is heavily kind of guided by the ability to, to be tough when you need to be. And I think that is so important in also everyday life. And I, I have talked to many of my friends and my family and people that I meet about the concept of tough love And I have varying responses. Some people do not like the concept of hurting people's feelings. some people don't understand it at all. And some people are supportive of it, like me. And um, the culture today basically is saying, at least in our societies, right? You know, the UK, the US and some other developed nations we are gradually guiding ourselves towards a society that does not tolerate tough love tough you know language tough criticism but it's so essential isn't it i feel without that how can we ever challenge someone's bad decisions and you know it's not sometimes it is not done by being kind Okay, sometimes it's not being done by being nice. Kindness and niceness are different. I actually did a whole episode on that, so I don't know why I said that. But kindness and niceness are totally different things. To be tough with someone because you care about them and you care about the outcome is kindness. To not be tough with someone because you are scared of the conflict or you do not want to hurt that person's feelings is being nice, which doesn't always work out. So I don't know what you think about that, but I feel like it's a void right now in our society.
1: Well, to give you a perfect example, I think the whole fat shaming thing is exactly what you're talking about. So as a firefighter paramedic who, you know, I've lost count how many people have died that, you know, I've witnessed either before we got there or literally, you know, while we're trying to save their life and, you know, a common denominator is usually, unless it's a, you know, extremely advanced age, it's usually obesity. So, this whole big is beautiful is ver- is, can be completely um, misunderstood. You, as a human being, are beautiful and you should never, ever be ashamed of who you are today. But by making it socially acceptable to be 300 pounds at five foot four is not kindness at all. It's not compassion at all. It's cowardice. Because you as you said, you don't want to address the real issue now what's not going to work is tell that person that's found themselves in that position you're fat, you need to lose weight you know you're a cow whatever it's just just nastiness um, at the same time you know it, it create an environment where they keep getting either maintaining or getting heavier and heavier is also unkindness so to me the the kindness and compassion is is creating that environment where it's easier for these men and women to start going back towards the, the the healthy route again. You know, I see people of all ages that, you know, usually, like I said, obese, die in all these horrible ways. And there's nothing beautiful about that whatsoever. It's horrific. But I also see, take COVID, that, you know, I think there's there's a big mental health element to a lot of obesity. I think people eat and drink their feelings, and I totally understand that. I mean, I'm big into the the mental health side, and I think that's what you know one of the things that we need to address. But also, right now, I don't know how it is in in England. I haven't been back for a while, but here in America, it is so easy to access the worst food, even when there's a global pandemic that's you know supposedly murdering everyone. You can still go to McDonald's and just line up in your car. You know, or just just go on your app and someone bring it to you. Just stay in your chair, you know. So we we've created this this environment to make ill health in this nation completely socially acceptable, you know. So that's where the tough love needs to come in, is not telling someone you know you need to stop eating. It's not going to work. They we would have stopped when they were thirty pounds overweight, or forty pounds overweight. So clearly, there's an environmental element. There's ownership. Every single person needs to own their own decisions, of course. But there's the environment, and this this is the the, you know, the double-edged sword for everything I talk about. You didn't have an obesity epidemic in America 100 years ago, and then going on back, you know. So we have created this environment that's made our people incredibly ill, and that's why. I never talk about left or right, whether it's in the UK, whether it's here in the US, because both sides have contributed to the continuous ill health of their nation. So shame on both of them. The system is broken. So, you know, to me, that's where the tough love needs to come in. We need to, if it's coming from a kindness and compassion, we need to start changing the environment that makes it easier for people to regain their health, but you know, not shy away from that conversation, you know. Big is beautiful. No, big is going to be a short life. I hate to tell you. You are beautiful as a person, but do not tell me that you wouldn't love to be a, a healthy body weight. Not talking about looking like Ken and Barbie, just a healthy body weight where you can live a lot longer. You can move so much better. You can play with your kids. You're not winded when you go up the stairs. You can fit in a plain seat, you know, that you don't have to buy two seats. I mean, these are all real issues. You know, you can see your genitalia. I mean, these. I'm not mocking these are real real things so I don't believe that anyone who's severely overweight wouldn't want to be a healthy version of themselves and use that body that was you know gifted to them at birth so there's there is a big difference between tough love and being an asshole and they're two very different things but if your whole push which is why I started the podcast why I wrote the book is because you don't want to see your men and women that you you know live amongst diseased, ailing in pain and dying, then pushing for change in that way comes from a, a place of, of kindness and compassion.
0: Mm, nicely said. Yeah, I did a recent uh, episode, as you know, with Michael Easter, who talked about his book, The Comfort Crisis, which is uh, a great way to put what's happening right now. We are in a, an epidemic of just being too comfortable and always seeking to be more comfortable. And it's changing. Ah, it's changing the way we do everything. It's changing the way we feel about ourselves, about other people. It's, uh, you know, one of the most important lessons historically from, you know, our previous generations from our, uh, from the, from the people we, we, we write about, you know, in, in the textbooks is that discomfort is so valuable to the human to human fulfillment meaning if you take discomfort out of the equation you're gonna be a fucking you know sad person you're not gonna be fulfilled you're not gonna you're not gonna feel like you're growing um, and I wish people read more I wish people looked to history and to and, you know the the ancient teachers more the Stoics uh, the the ancient Chinese the whatever you want to whichever period you want to go back to even in recent times you know even last century is full of of great teachers and you know it's so easy to forget this but anyway I'm with you on that one um, your your approach in the book surprised me because I wasn't expecting to read such a holistic book (laughs) and it is a holistic book. It's, um, it starts out as a kind of a recounting of your history with your profession, right? Um, but it goes into a lot more than that. And I was really impressed with how much you wanted to educate people about health and nutrition and fitness. And I just want to ask you what how do you deal with? Because you told us how long these days are, right? Well, how intensive these um, working hours are for firefighters. How do you and your family deal with that? You know, mentally and physically and emotionally.
1: Um, I mean, that's the thing that the the unspoken, unsung heroes of of responders of the families. You know, the, the husbands and wives that that are at home while the other person's away. So. Um, you know, I have so much respect for first responder families, military families, because for them, while we're gone, whether it's a 24-hour shift, whether it's a nine-month deployment, they're effectively single parents, you know. And then when we come back, sometimes we're the other child that walks back through the door. Um, so, you know, firstly, just kudos to, to anyone in that position because they – also you know feel the ripple effects of that they're the ones that you know waiting for us to come home and they get the phone call hey they they said i can't come home so i'm going to be gone for another 24 hours and it's you know your son's birthday or christmas or you know because murphy's loyal happened then um has that happened to you have you have you been back yeah i mean so many times most responders you know if you ask them yeah and that's again something that people don't know you know um and even it's just to include another group dispatchers another one that but you know suffers long hours. I mean, they're stuck in a dark room for 12 hours at a time. They're in a chair for 12 hours at a time. Often they're understaffed. um, So another group we shouldn't forget about. Um, So, but yeah, I mean, really my goal is to educate our professions to the point where we create an environment for them to thrive. Right now, you know, certainly here in the U.S., it, the job is really set you up for failure. It really, really is. You know, shift work is a carcinogen. Like, actually classified as a carcinogen. So, if you're not giving doctors, nurses, firefighters enough time to rest between shifts, it, it acutely you're becoming less and less, um, you know, able. And then chronically, your you know your your hormones, I mean, everything in your body is just is breaking down because you repair when you sleep. Um, so, f- how I dealt was just partly educating myself you know that's how i got into starting the podcast i listened to him tim Ferriss, joe rogan barbell shrugged the squad room um trying to you know pull that information and then when i realized there was nothing really for the fire service in that space was when i i kind of had that all right here's your sign start it yourself um but it takes it takes a lot you know you have to watch what you eat you have to have good sleep hygiene when you get off shift um You know, you have to make sure that you spend quality time with your family because you're not there. Like I had a realization just a few weeks ago, um, over my career, 14 years, I only woke up next to my wife and in the same house as my son, um, a third of my my life, because, you know, one in three. So the way it works, the very first day we're getting up at the crack of dawn, you know, most firefighters tend to work away from where their station is because they can't afford to live in, you know, the urban setting. Um, So I would, you know, be up at five, everyone else would be asleep. Um, You know, so off I go. The next shift, I I drive 70 miles home. By the time I get home, my wife's at work, my son is in school. So again, I'm not getting to to talk to either of them. So it's only that third day that I actually wake up and get to interact with my family for 14 years. Um, so I can my... I
0: can hear almost, in, in, you know, a bunch of people, wives, maybe listening to this thinking, Oh, my God, I, I would love that. I would absolutely <laughs> love
1: that. <laughs> yeah, depending on yeah, that might be a good time to, to rethink your marriage. Sorry about the uh, the yapping in the background, mother family member. Um, you, know, you know,
0: what's funny as well, you mentioned earlier, that you do uh stunt work in your spare time. And I, I was thinking this guy is a crazy motherfucker. Like he does one of the most dangerous jobs. Uh, and then in his spare time, he does one of the other most dangerous jobs.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, not- what drew you to, to that? Well, it's funny because it actually, um, very, very long story, very short. I want to be a fireman growing up in England. I had one of those annual school tests. They told me I was colorblind and I'm not the sharpest tool in the box so I just, you know, listened to a person in a white coat and was like, "Oh, okay." And they're like, "You can't be a pilot, you can't be a firefighter." I was like, "Well, okay. Well, shit." There goes that idea. So I st- I literally stumbled around for years because unbeknownst to me that was what I was destined to do. So I was I was a lifeguard for a long time. Um did some other, you know, menial jobs, but um I went to drama school I was with a with a girl. She was in drama school. I actually went did this like one-year post Post grad cl- uh, class, and I got into. I was terrible at acting, and still am awful at acting. But for some reason, the the sword play and stuff. I had a martial arts background. I really, really loved that, and seemed to excel in in the combat side. So, I um I ended up getting hired as a stuntman at Universal Studios in Japan. They opened the park there because I was traveling around the world, and I, I auditioned in Australia. Um and just got into stunts and loved it. Well, then I met a girl there, we got married, my son's mother, I'm, I'm since divorced and remarried now, very happily. Um, but uh, it brought me to America. When I was here, I just had an epiphany right before, like, wait, I can see colors. What the hell were they talking about? And by this point, I'm like 26. So it took me a long time to figure that out, 10 years. Um, but uh, so I challenged the medical basically. And they, you know, those bloody books, I can see some of the numbers, but I can't see others. I told him, oh, look, I'm not going to be able to see them all, but you point to anything in this room, I'll tell you what color it is. That's exactly what happened. Past, flying colors. So I was just color deficient, not colorblind. Everything wasn't black and white. Um, so always question what you're told. Anyone listening, if they're told they can't do a profession. Um, but yeah, so then what ended up happening is I was already a stuntman by that point, and then I found myself in the fire service. So um, yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> It's funny because people, the firefighters say, oh, it's so cool that you're a firefighter. I mean, you're a stuntman, you know, this must be dangerous. I'm like, no, because I know what's going to happen usually. I mean, it's still dangerous, of course, but, you know, you're you're practicing that danger. When you go into a fire or you're standing on the side of a road working a wreck, not knowing if you're going to get mowed down by another motorist, that's true danger. So to me, the fire service is always much, much more dangerous than, than the stunt world.
0: Mm. Okay, that's a good way to put it. And I can see your point of view as well. And the fact that you were a stuntman before you were a firefighter means you're not as crazy as I thought you were.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's another interesting perspective I got as well. And and now I'm doing the the Jason Bourne stunt show in, in Universal in Orlando. Awesome cast with some really, really good people. But earlier in my career, I really struggled because I would come from the fire station surrounded by people that were there to serve others, to put others first, you know, and then I'd go to the show and there was a lot of narcissism, a lot of like, you know, wanting to be the center of attention. And I I found that hard. It was a real kind of dichotomy that I struggled with because, you know, I, I love the performing part, but I didn't want to be the center of attention. You know, I, I was a, you know, a servant. So, um, what's nice now is, is the people I work with are, you know, they're, they're pretty down to earth, but that industry can be almost the kind of polar opposite of you know the the first responder industry depending obviously on the cast and i take someone like josh again um you know you see a lot of these people in in that space who are incredibly altruistic you know john cena and some of these other ones that you see just constantly helping a lot of the the british football team the english football team excuse me amazing people which blows me away why that can the few racist idiots in the uk got so much freaking airtime they should have just been ignored the, the country loves those guys and that should have been the message but um but anyway so yeah so it was it was an interesting dichotomy but now because i've transitioned out the fire service i joke and say what's well, the way i keep my man card still as i'm doing stunts because uh, <laughs> i'm not wearing a fire uniform anymore what kind of stunts do
0: you do uh, 'Cause I know you do martial arts, so I assume that plays a certain part uh, role in it. And uh, I remember seeing a video of you like doing the you know, the roundhouse uh reverse turning kick and pulling the the what is the it? Hydrant the, uh, the hydrant, yeah, which is pretty yeah. cool
1: yeah so it, that's that's pretty much where my yeah. Well, if i won't use the word expertise but that's where my skills are is the stage combat yeah so i've done i used to do a pirate show and we did like a high well not a high fall a fall i don't think it would qualify to be called a high fall but a fall into a mat and we did sword fights up on the mast and all kinds of stuff but yeah the the stage fighting is is uh is really kind of my my niche and that's what i do now but i'm not jason Bourne, so i basically get my ass kicked um all you right, know, you're the, the, the guy
0: that d- dies.
1: <laughs> yes, a lot. <laughs> so, but yeah, but it's a good thing. But you know, it's it, it's a very fun physical way of um, you know, of performance, and it's very uh, very very different than the fire service. So it's it's a kind of refreshing thing. And I only do it once in a while. I'll do I'll do you know a day of shows every two or three weeks. So I don't do it enough because that can become monotonous too. If you're doing the same show over and over again. After a while, it just gets boring. So I like to keep things fresh and kind of be a jack of all trades, master of none. I think life for me is so much more interesting when I'm doing
0: a lot of different things, you know, and not everyone's built that way. It sounds like you are, but there there's there's a lot of people who focus on one thing or two things, and that's what they do for their whole life. And they're happy and it's totally great for me. I don't know how much of this is fear of missing out or if it's just my makeup, but I have to learn new things. I just feel dead if I don't. Um, So, you know, I recently started writing a script uh, because I, I, I stumbled across it by accident. I interviewed a woman for a series that we do or have been doing on Unleash Love, and it's about women and their experiences with their partners, with relationships, their intimacy. And I interview women from all over the world. I just like to know what they've been through. Um, And this one woman had a fucking batshit crazy story, which incorporated everything, the FBI, drugs, sex, corruption, politicians. And I was like, this is a movie. You gotta write this, you gotta make a movie out of this. And she was like, yeah, I know, everyone says that. I just haven't had time. And, you know, a week later she called me and she said, I've decided I'm going to write this movie and I want you to write it. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't write movies. I've never done it before. And she said, yeah, I know, but something tells me you're the one to do it. And I figured, you know, well, why not? You know, it would be a weird thing to pass up. It's a great opportunity. It wasn't until later that I realized she's really good friends with, one of the top, well, a really top uh, Hollywood director and producer and writer. And, you know, it's these kinds of things that if you, and I say this to people often, I think, you know, for the more closed-minded perhaps or just people who don't feel like they have confidence, if you just put yourself out there and do stuff, you know, keep one foot in the comfort zone and put one foot in the discomfort zone, right? Going back to what we talked about earlier, discomfort's a good thing in doses then things just start to appear and happen and like i met you and i started talking to you and you know you're an inspiration to me and um i feel like the more that you do the things that make you curious right the more you investigate them the more life just some, somehow blooms and opens up and you start to see things and um so it's it's a, it's something i relate to very much so uh, speaking of which, I think you—you
1: know—if have you
0: spoken to Joe Rogan? Have you have you been in touch with their team? Because I feel um, like he would love to have you on his show.
1: Well, so it's funny because I've I've reached out um, in a couple of ways to try and get him on. Like no one, no one has really interviewed Joe Rogan, you know. And I'm sure you know Joe puts out what like four F- ben shows Shapiro a week. has. Oh, is it? Ben-
0: Ben Shapiro's interviewed him. Yeah.
1: Okay. I'm going to write that down because um, yeah. Yeah. Ben oh, Shapiro's interviewed
0: him. Oh, you want to have him on your show? That would be, that would be gangster if you did
1: that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we, we have mutual friends. Absolutely. Um, I would love, I would love for him to read the book because here's the thing. I think a lot of people go on Joe's show, um, partly obviously because they want to talk to him, but partly because as a, as a promotional element. If you're on the Joe Rogan show, of course you're going to have a huge amount of exposure, which is a shame because i just would love to go on there so i can talk to him about the the you know the first responder community i, I don't think he's ever had a firefighter on before and it would be well,
0: well don't you think that that's that's a good enough reason to go on a show cuz i yeah. i do
1: yeah no, i know i'd love to but i think you know like i said i would love to it, it's like how do you what the the biggest challenge i think with the podcast is just showing people hey this is purely an altruistic project that is just trying to make positive changes, but there's so much self-promotion out there that it's very hard to get to have the the focus on you and pe- get people to look at it long enough to go ah. And I think that has been seen. I mean, I just had a conversation with a guy who's come on yesterday. Um, his name's uh, Johnny Walker, um, and he was uh, an Iraqi who ended up joining. Um, being attached to the Navy Seals and now lives here in the u s an amazing story and I just got to talk to him yesterday, but That's I think again
0: named Johnny yeah, Walker,
1: yeah, well, that was his code name, so you know and I, I'm <laughs> just about to read his book, so i'm not even not even well versed in um you know his full story yet, so I will before we sit down. but you know again, I'm having all these conversations because now there's a the word of mouth like hey here's here's this 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 person he's a firefighter you know he's from England. This is what he's trying to do, and there's that kind of um, trust being passed on. So I'm hoping organically, eventually, that will happen with Joe, because just like you know, you and I are having a great conversation, I think that we would as well, and I think that he would be really blown away at you know the perspective that we have. And again, it's not about me; it's about being a voice for this profession. But educating, you know, on whether it's the the, the fireside, obviously touching on, on police as well, but really, you know, pulling that curtain back and, and educating all of his audience, like, hey, here's here's what these people go through, here's some of the, the myths, here's, you know, his you know, his the reason why, for example, we used to get this all the time, why is there a fire engine on my medical call? Well, this is 2021. We've been doing EMS in the fire service for 50 years now. You know, actually, I, I found out, um, I had a guest who's from Dublin Fire. They've been doing fire and EMS combined since the 1800s. You know what I mean? So, But we, we our profession has a terrible job at educating the public what we do. But, you know, no one, it, it comes across like, oh, the fire, oh, yeah, you just work a couple times a month and, and then, yeah, it must be a great job. No, the reality as we discussed is the polar opposite, our our shifts are actually you know the worst <laughs> out there pretty much aside from a, a junior doctor and uh, and it's killing them you know so it would be it would be a great conversation I would love to talk to him I've listened to his podcast for you know six plus years now um, I think it would be a great way to tell the fire services story global fire service um, give the perspective of what we see on the the health of the you know the, the nation you um, but I, you know, I just hope it happens in an organic way. I would absolutely love it. But, um, you know, where's that fine line between being super enthusiastic, but at the same time not appearing like you just want to promote your book that you just wrote? <laughs> you know what I mean? So,
0: yeah, I think you and I suffer from a similar affliction, which is that we have a real problem with, uh, you know, going against our values and, uh it is, uh, it's a challenge that I struggle with too. I mean, I I even have issues promoting affiliate services in the ads that we do for our podcast episodes because I don't want people to think that it's just a cash grab. And admittedly, it does help. I mean, every sale we make helps me to be able to do this on an ongoing basis. Like, I don't, this is self-funded. So, but I genuinely would really love to listen to that uh, podcast or watch that podcast because I think it needs to happen you know um, this is such a juicy necessary subject and it's been one of the most interesting conversations that I've had on the show so far so you know I I really do appreciate everything that you're doing you're an amazing guy you have such amazing principles it's very clear to me and uh, and I hope that you get every bit of success from what you're doing you know
1: well, thank you. Well, likewise as well, mate. I mean, that's the thing you said earlier about people being inherently good. I I agree. I hundred percent agree. I think there, you know, there is the the certain group of people who just seem to inherently be able to lead really well. They're pioneers. They're innovators. They're they're you know just dynamos. That we have the other side of the spectrum, but they're just inherently horrible people for whatever reason, wherever, you know, they went from a a giggling toddler to that is, is obviously a conversation in itself. And then you have that middle group. And I think that middle group is easily swayed. And I don't mean that as, as, you know, being um, derogatory, but I just think we are, I think a lot of people, like you said, are so, you know, distracted by just life, like paying the bills and raising the kids and all that stuff that it's easy to be pulled. Um, And, the more projects, you know, the, the, like yours, um, hopefully like mine, like, you know, all these other people are out there really trying to put the good information, the the true leaders of the world that are standing up, you know, um, I think that we really can pull that that middle group towards good. They're being dragged towards some of the negative things and being divided and, you know, being being puppets basically of, of some of the media and social media BS that we see. Um, but I don't mean, again, puppets not being derogatory. I just think that we just need leadership and, and you lead by example. So whether it's your project, whether it's Joe Rogan, Tim Ferris, you know, some of these amazing documentaries are being made now. Some of these beautiful books are being written. Um, that to me is the answer. So, you know, you're as much a part of the solution as I'm trying to be. So thank you
0: uh oh, thanks, man. No, I appreciate it. But um again, I, I hope you I, I hope you have all of the success, man. You you are a, a really amazing person and uh the book his is, is life changing. I don't think I'll forget some of the stories that you mentioned in there. Maybe we can talk about that more one day. Uh but um yeah, thank you for coming on.
1: Yeah, well again, thank you so much. i really enjoyed the conversation and uh yeah, let's chat again soon. Hey, thanks
0: for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe today and you won't miss the next episode. We cover topics like recovering from infidelity, online dating, managing chronic anxiety, and so much more. We're on all the popular platforms, so take your pick and we'll see you soon.